Good morning, Redemption Parker. Good to see you guys. I'm Rick. I'm one of the elders here. Good to see some of you kids. We don't have too many in this group. Um, Normally on Family Sundays, I like to start off with a uh, cartoon video, but uh, Apostle Paul, he's just like, let's let's go. Um, It's kind of hard to get in in, in, uh, a cartoon with uh, with Paul, especially this this text we're going to be in this morning. But you guys can start working your way to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. According to Ancestry.com, I'm uh, 57% Jewish. Now, now I say that because when Israel became the nation state of Israel in 1948, one of the founding principles was the right for Jewish people to live in the Holy Land. The the law of return was enacted there shortly after to to make sure that there would always be a Jewish majority in Israel. The, The qualifications were quite simple. At least one grandparent had to be Jewish. Well, millions jumped on the offer. The policy was a success. If I was around from 1948 to 1950, you better believe I would have became an Israeli citizen. But it didn't last long because in the 1950s, debates arose around what it means to be Jewish. At the end of the day, you were considered Jewish if you were born an ethnic Jew and, quote, as long as he or she does not accept another religion. I found this out the hard way when I wanted to take advantage of the birthright Israel trip a decade, a decade ago. It's a, it's a free trip to Israel for anyone 18 to 28 who at least has one parent who is a Jew. That's what I was told. And so with my dad being 100% Jewish, I confidently began the application process. But what soon became clear to me was that you're only recognized as Jewish, quote, if either parent is Jewish and the applicant does not actively practice another religion. Dang it. No free trip for me. You can be an agnostic Jew like my aunt. You can be an atheist Jew Like my uncle, you can be a polytheist Jew like my barber and be legally considered a Jew. But ultimately, it comes down to this. Once you accept Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, once you profess that Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is God, well, it doesn't matter that you're ethnically Jewish, that you worship Yahweh, that you affirm the Old Testament scriptures, that you've placed your hope in Israel's Messiah. Ironically, at this point, you have legally forfeited your rights to being a Jew. One American Jewish author says, quote, it is the rejection of Jesus as Christ that binds American Jews together. It is by the rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus that we proclaim to the world that we are still Jews. In this doctrine, the, the, the deity of Christ, Jesus as God, has been at the center of my conversations with my dad over the last 15, 16 years. Though we always find ourselves debating 
about the doctrine of hell. At the end of the day, his biggest obstacle was never hell. It was the deity of Christ. Jesus claiming to be Yahweh, Israel's Messiah, who was going to usher in God's kingdom through a Roman cross. So when he said to me in a cigar lounge last summer here in Parker that that he has come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is fully divine. That he, he is Israel's Messiah who has come to take away the sin of the world. And then he proceeded to talk about his problems with the doctrine of hell. I, I realized hell is not the hill to die on right now. If, if, if Jesus is God in my dad's mind, this has the potential to change everything. So with a smile on my face, I told him, Dad, we believe the same things about Jesus. But with suspicion in my heart, I told him, there's one big difference though, Dad. I'm connected to a local church. You're not. Dad, find and get plugged into a healthy local church. Jesus is God, but he's also head of the church. Well, a church he has found, and over the last six months, he's been integrated into the life of the church. He's been discipled by the pastor, and in two weeks on Sunday, I'll get to witness his public profession of faith through baptism. <laughs> Praise God, right? Yeah. <laughs> what, what about you? Have you wrestled, like really wrestled, with the doctrine of the deity of Christ. If Jesus is God, then this has drastic consequences for everyone in this room, everyone in our city, everyone on this globe. If Jesus is God, then all supremacy belongs to him. Everything that has been created by him ultimately belongs to him and has been made for him, including us. If Jesus being God does not affect every breath you take, then maybe, just maybe, you don't fully understand what it means that Jesus is God. This morning, as we jump into our next passage in Colossians, the, the Apostle Paul wants us to see the supremacy of Christ in all things. That Christ is the center of everything, whether we want to put him there or not. So if you're not already there, open to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Our passage this morning starts in verse 15 and we'll go all the way through verse 23. But before we unpack this passage, I do want us to see something pretty cool about verses 15 to 20. Um, In chapter 3, Paul is going to say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. Well, every commentary I read in preparation for this sermon, they believe that verse 15 to 20 is an early church hymn, a poem. I know Chris appreciates that. Whether it was already in circulation and Paul just penned it here or whether Paul is the author of this hymn, we have no way to know for sure, but 
But this passage, these six verses, this hymn that I'm about to read is the Mount Everest passage when it comes to the person of Christ. N.T. Wright says these six verses are among the most important Christological passage and passages in the entire New Testament. But before we go deep into theology about the Son of God incarnate, it's important to note that this was a hymn. This was sung in the church, not just studied in the seminaries. Theology means nothing if it stays in our heads. It, it must drop deep into our hearts. So listen with your mind and your heart as I read this early church hymn, verses 15 to 20. This is the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amazing, right? Now, typically, I'd have to fight for a passage like this, but lucky for me, Mark was going out of the country. <laughs> so let's jump right in. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, in the Greek, this actually isn't even a new sentence, right? But, but this hymn fits in right where our passage left off last week. A better translation would be, who is the image of the invisible God? And we know from verse 13, we're talking about the beloved son, Jesus, the one who has, verse 13, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into God's kingdom, Jesus, the beloved son who did all that, including verse 14, in whom, again, Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So after the apostle Paul has reminded the Colossians of what Jesus has already done, Paul puts on his worship leader hat as he breaks out into song and uses these lyrics to explain who this Jesus is. And who is he? Verse 15 he is the image of the invisible God. Paul says, you want to see God? Look at Jesus. He's God's own image. The author of Hebrews says, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God. It doesn't get more clear than this, but then Paul continues He's also, quote, the firstborn of all creation. Hmm. Did Paul just contradict himself? Jesus is the image of God. We know God has never had a beginning. He has always been. 
Jesus is the firstborn. So is he God or not? I had a couple of, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses in my house about a week and a half ago. And this is the passage they wanted to turn to, to prove to me that Jesus is awesome, Rick. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. But he's not Jehovah God. He's God's firstborn of all creation. The sweet older lady, Teresa, thought she cornered me when she said, Rick, when you say Eden is your firstborn, what do you mean? Um, Well, even though they they knew I was a pastor, they didn't know that I had been steeped in Colossians 1 all week. (laughs) So I answered, when I say Eden's my firstborn, I, I... I would mean Eden was our firstborn child. There was a time when it was just Holly and I. And that was a nice time. (laughs) But on October 5th, 2018, Eden entered our family and now we have three kids. So when I say firstborn, I would mean Eden was born before the other two. And as they seemed to to really like my answer, I I, I continued, but firstborn here, how Paul is using it in Koine Greek to the letter to these Colossians is not how we use it in Parker, Colorado, 2023. Paul uses the Greek word prototokos, right? The, The word can mean born first, but it doesn't always mean that. It can mean preeminence, first in position, highest in ranking. For instance, we know that King David was not the firstborn king. He wasn't even the firstborn son in his family. He was the, the last of eight. But what does Psalm eighty nine twenty seven say? He was the prototokos, the firstborn. David was preeminent, first in position, highest of rank. And David was simply a foretaste of a greater David who would reign forever. forever. Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus, the preeminent one. Jesus, first in position, highest in rank. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he says he is the firstborn of all creation. Let's keep moving. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This verse reminds me of what the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously said. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Thrones here speak of power. Power here speaks of spiritual beings. Rulers and authorities speak of spiritual powers and earthly authority. All of it created by Christ And for Christ. Oh yes, he cries, mine indeed. Everything created was created by Christ and for Christ. Now the Jehovah's Witness and the Arians before them, 
would say, yes, Jesus created everything, but after God created him. But the next time these Jehovah's Witness friends come over, I'm going to remind them of John 1, verse 3, where John goes even further than Paul, where he says, all things were made through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. Without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. John is clear as day. The Son of God could not have been made. Why? Because he's God. Rather, all of creation has been made by him and exists for him. Yes, including you and me. Now, in the Greek, this hymn is divided up super nicely as you have basically two main stanzas. The entire hymn is about Christ, but it moves from creation in the first stanza to new creation in the second. So we're going to look at the second now, and then we'll come back and end with the chorus, which is actually right in the middle of this hymn. So look with me at the middle of verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Sounds quite familiar to what we just read. Paul has moved from Christ in creation to Christ in new creation. Christ is now the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Well, what does this mean? Uh, Again, N.T. Wright says, humanity was made as the climax of the first creation. The true humanity of Jesus is the climax of the history of creation and at the same time, the starting point of the new creation. When Jesus rose from the grave, the the firstborn from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of God and was enthroned as king, he ushered in a new kingdom. And all who have trusted in Christ one day will be given a glorified body like Jesus. He's the firstborn from the dead, but there will be many fruit that follow. And we will live in this redeemed earth forever. The the author of the first creation is also the author of the second, the new creation. It's Jesus. And in the first creation... Like we read about in the New City Catechism, he he spoke things into existence, but, but not in the new creation. The new creation comes into existence as the Son of God became something that he previously wasn't, namely a man, to reconcile all things to himself. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In the next chapter, Paul is going to say, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Just like in old temple, Old Testament times when, when God would come and dwell in Eden or dwell the mountain dwell in the temple or the tabernacle. Well, now God has done something unbelievable. He has taken upon himself another nature. 
a human one, and will dwell there forever as the Son of God incarnate. Fully God and fully man. I love what the 17th century poet penned. "'Twas much that man was made like God before. So think the Imago Dei in Genesis 1. "'Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be like man much more. Sometimes we lose the ability to marvel at basic Christian doctrine because we're so used to it. Yeah, Jesus, the God-man, big deal. What's going on in the book of Revelation? That's what I want to know about. We know about Christ. Who's the Antichrist? But, but this basic doctrine, this essential doctrine in Orthodox Christianity, what, what theologians call the hypostatic union, one person acting out two natures, the God-man, Jesus, to, to reconcile all things to himself through his obedient life and brutal death on a Roman cross, the humility of the Son of God to take on another nature, which is seen in the incarnation of, of Christmas and the crucifixion of Good Friday should absolutely rock us, church. It should. In the early church, Melito of Sardis in, in eighty one eighty, he wrote this. And so he was raised on a cross and a title was fixed indicating who it was who was being executed. Painful it is to say, but more terrible not to say, he who suspended the earth is suspended. He who fixed the heavens is fixed. He who fastened all things is fastened to the wood. The master is outraged. God is murdered. But it doesn't stop there. He then becomes the firstborn among the dead because of his resurrection and now forever lives as a man. King Jesus, the God-man. Praise God for the gospel, the, the good news that Jesus is the saving king. Amen? Amen. Well, let's end our hymn um, with the chorus, and then we'll, we'll finish off with some application. So look with me at verse 17. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. At the center of this Christ hymn, the chorus of this Christ hymn is what you'd expect, the supremacy of Christ. I love what Doug Moose says here. What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work and planets would not stay in their orbits. Paul wants them and us to understand that things make sense only when Christ is kept at the center. Like I said earlier, when Jesus is God, this has the potential to change everything. The, the, the one who holds all things together. The one who is sovereign and working out every little detail of your life. Who has all of your hairs 
numbered, who, who knows you better than you know yourself, he has made you for himself. When we have eyes to see that Christ is supreme, we realize that he is at the center of everything. There's only one proper response to this kind of supremacy, and that's to live a Christ-centered life. And how do we do that? Well, in him, of course. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. If Christ is the king of your life, then then through faith you have been placed in his body. Christ is the head. We are the body. We are in Jesus. Can't get a super good read in this room, but I hope this fires you up. Like this should make you much more excited than who the Broncos drafted last week. You are in Christ if you're a follower of Jesus. Now we'll talk more next week about our union with with Christ when we come to that phrase, Christ in you. But right here we do see that we are in Christ. And just like all the benefits of, of, of being in the pace center are ours once we step into the pace center, the warmth, the the donuts, the the coffee, the fellowship, the worship, the bathrooms. Well, the same is true for those in Christ. All the benefits of Christ and the gospel are ours through union with him. This is a big deal. He is the head. We are the body. But Paul doesn't stop with the body metaphor. He goes even further. Christ is the head of the body, the church. And now Christ is definitely the the head of the universal capital C church. Every believer in every generation in this one body. What an amazing picture. Are you excited for heaven? But but, but how we live out a a Christ-centered life is not only in him, but it is within his local church. The, the, the church is not some optional thing as you attempt to walk out your Christian life. That's, that's not how it works. It's actually within the church that together we live out the Christ-centered life. So, so be committed to the local church. As imperfect as she is, Christ is her head. Well, what a hymn, right? From Christ in creation to Christ in new creation. It's, it's Christ, Christ, Christ. The supremacy of Christ is everywhere. The Son of God stands at the beginning of creation as the one through whom it came into existence, but he also stands at the end. He's the goal of all creation. So, so what's our application? Well, Paul's going to give it to us. Verses 21 to 23, our application this morning. Verse 21. And you, who were once 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul begins this application with a reminder. You, you who were dead, you who were once a sinner have now been made a saint. As the kingdom of God has been ushered in through a cross, through faith, you, once an alien to God, have now been reconciled to him. You've been transferred from death to life, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. Why? Paul says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul is speaking of the future judgment where each one of us will stand before this holy God. And then he gives this interesting warning in verse 23. You will be presented holy before God if, if indeed you continue in the faith. Our application this morning is that you would feel the weight of this warning. New Testament warnings like this are not meant for us to fall into debates about the five points of Calvinism. No, they are meant to be heeded so that you persevere in the faith. Paul wants us to see that that saving faith is persevering faith. And without persevering faith, there is no salvation. You can affirm all you want that Jesus is God. Awesome. So does all of hell. But will you continue in the faith, holding on to the hope of the gospel? And that word in verse 22, holy, hagias. Well, holy is what Paul wants these Christians to be on that day, that day of reckoning, that day of judgment. But, but it's, 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 it's interesting because that's the same word he used back in the introduction of the letter when he calls them saints or holy ones. It's the same word we get sanctification from. What Paul wants these Christians in Colossae and us to be on that great day of judgment is what we already are in Christ. So as we persevere in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, let's be who we already are in Christ. Let's be the church. In Christ, we are the church. In Christ, we are his body. In Christ, we are his holy ones, his saints. Let's be those who live a Christ-centered life so that in everything, he might be preeminent. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace.
Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the supremacy of Christ in all things, God. We, we know this to be true. We've read a passage like this before. But how easy is it to forget? Christ is holding all things together. That if we walk out of this door in a few minutes, it's because Christ is giving us breath to breathe. God, I pray that we would be a church who sees Christ as the center of the universe. That we would live our life with Christ in the center. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.